0: Welcome to season four of the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness, with your host, India Loric Wilmot. Good day, good day, good day. Today's guest is nationally recognized pediatric physician scientist and thought leader, Dr. Tiffany Johnson. Tiffany is a tenured associate professor of emergency medicine at UC California Davis's School of Medicine. With almost 20 years of experience as both a pediatric emergency medicine physician and researcher, her work focuses on improving the quality of care for underserved children. In particular, Tiffany explores the root causes of inequities in healthcare and in early childhood education settings as it relates to implicit bias and discrimination. Frequently published in journals such as Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, and the Academy of Emergency Medicine, just to name a few, Tiffany serves as co-chair of the Race in Medicine Special Interest Group of the Academic Pediatric Association, co-chair of Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network for their Disparities Working Group, and is leading efforts with the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on the Psychosocial Aspects of Child and Family Health and the American Academy of Pediatrics National Advisory Board for Addressing Social Health and Early Childhood Wellness. In fact, she is currently campaigning for the role of president-elect for the Academic Pediatric Association. Tiffany is the distinguished recipient of the inaugural American Academy of Pediatrics section on Minority Health Equity and Inclusion Award. She is an agitator and abolitionist working to dismantle structures of racism through clinical practice, research, teaching, and advocacy. Welcome, Dr. Tiffany Johnson. Thank you for having me, India.
1: It's great to be here.
0: I'm excited that you're here. I'm really eager to walk with you and learn a little bit more about your journey of belonging to Blackness thus far. So we have a lot of ground to cover. So you ready? Let's do it. Right about now. Act One Call to Adventure. This is the breakdown. All right, Tiffany. So take us back in time to the beginning. You are a New Jersey girl, Mm -hmm. and you grew up in Montclair and Trenton with your mom and your sister. So, who or what inspired you to become a pediatric physician scientist? So taking it back to New Jersey,
1: becoming a physician specifically, the earliest memory that I have of saying that I was going to become a doctor was because of some shade that my older sister threw me. I was about five years old. She's four years older than me. So that would have made her about nine. And we were sitting at Aunt Betty's kitchen table. Aunt Betty's her godmother. She asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said that I was going to be a nurse. And she said, well, why do you want to be a nurse? Why don't you want to be a doctor? I said, well, girls are nurses and boys are doctors. And she's like, see, that's why I don't fool with you. Because you don't know anything. And girls could be whatever they want to be. And like girls are smarter than boys. And I was like, well, fine. I'm just going to be a doctor then. (laughs) So That was an early lesson with Shade from my baby. Sister on how do you think outside of the box and outside of that paradigm of what society tells you you can do and you should do and dream bigger for yourself. So that is the earliest memory I have of saying I want to be a doctor. I'll say going into middle school and high school, I was more open to exploring different career pathways. And I just kept coming back to my love of science and my love of children. And the best way to combine that for me was becoming a pediatrician. Other things I think influenced me kind of in that middle school and high school era was watching one of my aunts die of complications from HIV and AIDS and then watching my great grandmother die from emphysema after years of smoking. And she also had colon cancer, likely related to her years of smoking as well. And so those experiences of kind of feeling hopeless and helpless and unable to advocate for them during all of the pain that they were experiencing during the end of their life and thinking about what could I do to help improve health outcomes in communities. Of color as an adult, so those are some of the things that led me to where I am
0: today. I love those two perspectives in terms of your reflection, right? So, of course, you have the goading from a sibling, <laughs> and in your case, an older sibling, and it just needs someone to ask you that question that says, "Hey, well, why not?" And then, of course, you have to have interest. You can't say, "I want to be a doctor," and then chemistry and biology, you don't do well. Right, so right. <laughs> doesn't work that way. Now, what specifically about pediatric emergency medicine intrigued you? Because you could have been just a pediatrician or a Mm -hmm. specialist in pediatrics, but emergency medicine is even nuanced too. So share with us.
1: When I got to pediatrics, that's just where I felt at home, both with the patient population and being able to see children at their worst moments and being able to help them to get them back to their best moments, being able to help comfort parents during what is the most stressful moment for them when their children are ill was appealing to me. And then also just in looking at my experience working with the surgeons on those rotations versus working with the pediatricians <laughs> on that rotation, I was like, these are my people. And it's just where I felt most at home. So. That's what kind of affirmed for me that pediatrics was the field for me. And then I did my residency at Children's National Medical Center. I was in a community health track because I always had an interest in how do you advocate, provide care for underrepresented and underserved populations. So the community health track at that time had an affiliation with Howard University. And so it gave me a really good balance between the big shiny children's hospital versus the under-resourced hospital that served predominantly Black populations. The things that drew me to emergency medicine early on Number one was that the emergency department is a gateway into the healthcare system where regardless of what language you speak, regardless of how much money you make, or even if you're uninsured, the emergency department is mandated to provide care for you, even if you can't afford to pay for it. And so that appealed to me for being able to provide access to high quality care for patients who otherwise might not even be able to access the healthcare system was appealing to me. And then as I went through some of my other rotations I was also attracted to the emergency department when thinking about some of the things that I saw in the ED and how many of those things were preventable. And so that interest in advocacy really aligned with emergency medicine and essentially like, how can I put myself out of business, right? Like, what do we need to do to keep kids from having to come into the emergency department? And so later on in my training, I actually had what I call my quarter life crisis because I was 25 years old in residency trying to choose between emergency medicine, critical care. So working in the pediatric ICU, which was just like sexy to me because it's like they were dead. They had no heartbeat. They had no pulse. And now they're alive and they're talking to me and they're hugging their mother. And so that was just like super sexy to me. Right. So I really liked critical care. And then my third option was not being a doctor at all because I had actually become disillusioned early in my training with just like the medical industrial complex and questioning whether or not I wanted to be a part of a system that seemed to be causing more harm than doing good. So I was like, well, I'm either going to do emergency medicine or critical care and not be a doctor at all. (laughs) Those were the options. I had a lot of loans to pay off. So not being a doctor at all was a challenge, but I ended up taking a year out and working for a public health program, figuring out like, how can I address some of these these challenges that I have with the healthcare system from a more of a public health perspective? And I ended up working for the Emergency Medical Services for Children National Resource Center. And it was during that time that I kind of saw emergency medicine was the best intersection. I realized I'm just taking care of patients during that year. So I was like, okay, I like being a doctor. I do like taking care of kids. And so emergency medicine provided a good intersection of being able to provide patients care, you can still take care of really sick kids, help them in their time of greatest need, but also a good intersection of providing a platform to advocate for what are some of the policies that need to change to improve the health and wellness of children.
0: That's pretty powerful. And I think we can talk about this a little bit later, but from what I do know of you, you are very results oriented and results driven. So I can see In terms of emergency medicine specifically, that it's not only just serving and working with children, but it's in the immediacy, as you were just explaining, Mm -hmm. child came in near death. And then within a very short period of time, you can see them and their health be resilient and bounce back in that sort of way. That's
1: the key difference between pediatric emergency medicine and general emergency medicine, where you say adults suck. Let me tell you, (laughs) So I don't know how I ever even consider taking care of adults, but adults come in sick and broken and like they may leave the emergency department slightly less sick or slightly less broken, but they still have their diabetes. They still have their hypertension. They still have their heart disease. But kids are so resilient. I do like that instant gratification of like kids coming broken and you can actually fix them. Whereas I feel like adult medicine was more demoralizing for me because I felt like, you know, it was something that I couldn't fix.
0: I want to give our listeners some context because you alluded to a lot of your experiences already, just to put a timeline together. So you attended the HBCU Xavier University of Louisiana. And then Rutgers University's Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. And then you also completed postgraduate studies at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. And then, as you mentioned, you also completed residency at Children's National Medical Center. Then you had a Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowship at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. And you were also a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Fellow all before joining the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia as a pediatric medicine physician and faculty researcher at Policy Lab, and then also a faculty member at UPenn School of Medicine.
1: And that was all before coming here now to UC Davis.
0: There you go. (laughs) And this is all over almost 20 years, but it's a rich experience. Because of that, I'm making a lot of assumptions and I want you to tell your story. So please describe for our audience the type of work you conducted early in your career as a pediatric emergency physician. What were some of the issues and challenges you observed that many of your patients and their families experience? How do you see research informing your clinical practice? Because you talk a little bit about this focus around community and advocacy and understanding people's access and utilization of healthcare and health services, particularly if the emergency room is the first point of contact. But what were some of the things that you were seeing that people were experiencing?
1: Initially, when I went into medicine, I never wanted to be a researcher. So it is quite fascinating to me now to see that that is the majority of my job when that wasn't my intention going into medicine. I just wanted to take care of kids and I wanted to advocate for underrepresented and underserved populations. So when I went into fellowship, I actually had a goal of getting an MPH during my fellowship so that I can think about how do you build public health programs and you know how do you advocate for policy level changes to impact some of the challenges that I was seeing with the problems That my patients were facing coming into the emergency department. And so when I applied for fellowships, I applied with that lens in mind like who is gonna let me get a free master's in public health that I don't have to pay for during my fellowship training. And that was one of the top reasons why I ended up doing my fellowship at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. So they at the time had a program where you can apply for internal funding to get a master's degree. However, at the time that I was applying for the program, they had a new department chair, a new chair of the Department of Pediatrics who was a basic sciences. And so while my fellowship program doctors are like, oh, you're gonna apply for this money. There's no way you're not gonna get it. Then there was a new person in leadership who was dispensing the money, who did not see value in paying for public health degrees, but instead wanted to produce researchers. So there was someone who was on that committee, Latino pediatric physician scientist, who said, well, you know, she says she wants to do advocacy, but I think she could and should be a researcher and we just need to give her the tools to be able to turn her advocacy questions into research questions. And so I actually went into it kind of kicking and screaming because I was like, you know, you guys baited and switched me. And you told me that I can do this. And now you're trying to make me into something that I don't want to be. But it was a good lesson for me kind of early in my career and in my training, I feel like Kanye West, like, they don't care about Black people, right? You <laughs> know, like, New York doesn't care about Black people. The academy doesn't really care about poor Black kids, right? You know, academic medicine, that's not really what their priority is. And so it was a good lesson for me to say, like, this is what you care about, and this is what you're passionate about. That does not align with the mission, with the priorities, the unspoken priorities of your institution. So how do you then take what you care about and figure out a way to try to align it with what the institution? Cares about so that you can get paid to do what you love as opposed to working a full time clinical job and figuring out the advocacy stuff part time. Or what I see a lot of women do is work a 0.8 or a 0.7 FTE so that they're getting paid, you know, 20 to 30% less and then doing this and essentially self funding themselves to do the things that they care about. Right. And so I was like, well, how can I like work the system to figure out how to align those priorities? And so research to me really was just a hustle, right? It was a mechanism you care about advocating for these underserved populations, how can you get a degree and get skills and get resources to do research that helps to generate the data that shows what the problems are that you can then advocate for the policy level solutions, whether that's like a lowercase p for policies within your hospital or capital P for policies like in the city, state, and in the country. So that's really how I initially got into research.
0: It's important because that's part of just your background and your history in terms mm-hmm. of how you see research informing your clinical practice. But, you know, what I think is interesting in terms of what you were focusing on just now in terms of your journey to date and the mindset or the assumption you had about research, mm-hmm. because in many ways, and perhaps it's me as a researcher, I don't see Any significant divide between the clinical aspect of one's work and the research/slash policy implications of the work. When you're in clinical practice, the methodologies, your approach, everything else is informed by whatever policies that your institution has since adopted that was based on more broader policies, right? You're making this distinction between small p in terms of your intra Mm -hmm. and then the larger p in terms of larger external systemic policies. I see those hand in hand. The
1: other, I think, important point around that that's coming up is that I didn't see the work that I'm doing now at the time going into it, I didn't see that as research. And that's because the academy at the time did not see this as real research, right? They didn't see work on racism and bias and discrimination and disparities. There's that like epistemic exclusion where they devalue that work. And so if you're not doing large, randomized control trials, testing two different drugs or like in a lab working with rats and zebrafish and things like that those hard sciences are considered research and the work that I do was considered like just advocacy right and so it was helpful again kind of I guess that 360 moment from my sister at the kitchen table saying you know like why are you going to be a nurse you could be a doctor now here it was somebody empowering me to say You say you want to do advocacy, but actually you can do research. And how do you just kind of redefine what research is and redefine what rigor is and redefine what success is in a field that had historically looked down at the type of work that I was doing at the time?
0: And it's unfortunate that they looked down upon this particular work, because if a lot of people and that's not to say all physicians and clinicians are goaded to do this work when they enter into medicine. But we're Mm going to make certain presumptions that they enter the field so that they can help to bring about the change that they want to see. So then why Mm -hmm. not be engaged in this kind of work as opposed to downplaying it? But then, Um, you know, perhaps maybe it's part of not just the white capitalist supremacist machine that's driving this medical complex another system right. but you know right. we can digress about that but to me it just seems like when people are taking the hippocratic oath when people are engaged with their patients there's sort of an ethical moral thing around social good and the betterment of individuals but yet there's this economic component this capitalist component we're not going to attribute value to this particular work because right. Right. it takes away from our bottom line et cetera, et cetera. And it's unfortunate. Yeah. So here you are. And as you just answered the research informing your clinical practice, now that you were in your early years in your career in clinical practice, what were some of the issues and challenges you observed that many of your patients and families experienced? And how did you see what the research was saying, what was actually playing out? Or was there some sort of gap? in terms of what you were observing early on?
1: You see so many different challenges, and every single patient kind of presents with different challenges. But I would say some of the common themes that I see that are challenging that I think we need more research and policy solutions for are, number one, like the mental health crisis and the lack of access to high-quality and affordable culturally sensitive mental health care, particularly for minoritized communities, is one of the big issues, Access is a big issue, even when you take out the issue of insurance. You know, many of my patients will qualify for Medicaid or public insurance, but even just you have a family who is working full time and their primary care office is only open between nine to five, right? So if any issues come up for their child and they're working, they have to choose between taking off of work, take their kid to the doctor, which means that they're potentially not going to get paid that day, right? So then that leads them to coming to the emergency department for things that could be seen in a primary care setting. For me, it's thinking about how do we provide more resources to make primary care services and other subspecialty services more readily available available to patients and families outside of that kind of nine to five norm. For me, a frustration of how the rules and the policies of the healthcare system are designed in a way that, again, they're just penalizing certain patient populations disproportionately. So again, how do we generate some of the evidence to show them what these problems are? And then the next phase is how do you convince them to fix the (laughs) problems? right? Because that's been a lot of my early career research. I think particularly as a pediatrician, pediatrics is a little bit behind in the research in health equity than adult populations. And part of that is because we had to actually convince pediatricians that it was a problem. So when I first started doing this research a decade ago, it was like, there are no disparities in pediatrics because we're pediatricians and we give hugs and high fives and, you know, we love all brown babies and we take care of everyone equally. There actually was a, a large part of my career just convincing people like, no, actually the disparities exist and actually bias exists. And then couldn't use the word racism. Racism gets whitewashed out of your articles by the gatekeepers um, who are the editors. But now, like finally, we can actually use the R word to say like racism exists in pediatrics too. So a lot of my early career was just kind of proving that a problem existed that we all know exists, but we had to prove to you know the academy that it existed. And now finally being able to transition to like we know these are the problems. Let's explore what some of the root causes are in pediatrics that might be different from adult populations, and then. And use that to develop and test kind of interventions. But it's like just so much groundwork for even proving that we have the same problem in pediatrics that other specialties do and that in general society has as well.
0: When you're serving populations, and even if it's just one aspect of, oh, this child came in and they're presenting with asthma or asthma-like symptoms... With
1: asthma, we're talking about environmental factors, right? And how residential segregation disproportionately puts minoritized communities at increased exposure to environmental pollutants that are going to trigger their asthma. We're talking about housing and housing conditions, and you know whether there are mold in the house or mice or cockroaches or other things in the houses that are going to trigger their asthma, right? So there's so many other social determinants that impact the health and wellness of children. Pediatricians have been keyed into that early on, but making that connection between like all social determinants of health are actually driven by racism, driven by white supremacy, and like making that connection of we can't address social determinants of health for children if we're not simultaneously addressing structural racism as well.
0: How or why does child health equity allow you to speak your truth? You've talked about that in other spaces, but I was curious to know what do you mean by that? And What's the truth that you want or need to tell?
1: So I think for me, the underlying truth for me is that all children have the right to equal access to live their best lives. We didn't talk a lot about this, but you mentioned that I'm originally from Montclair and then moved to Trenton. So I think for me, that actually was also pivotal in some of my career choices and my research choices. So for those of you who don't know anything about New Jersey, Montclair is a nice bougie, like middle-class neighborhood where we actually didn't have a lot of financial resources at that time. My mother was a public defender, so you know she wasn't making lots of money and she was a single parent raising two kids, but we were still in an environment where there were amazing public schools, right? And, you know, I was surrounded by, like, our town librarian was a Black woman who was my mother's good friend who was Auntie Sherry to me. So I was surrounded by, like, all of these Black professionals. She was friends with, you know, attorneys and judges and dancers and ministers. And because she had a background in education, she had a master's in education before she got her law degree, she ended up taking a job working for the Trenton Public Schools as their school board attorney. So we went from these really amazing public schools in Montclair where I was, like, into gifted and talented classes and throughout. Driving in the public schools there to the Trenton public schools, which were terrible. <laughs> so I think that was an early lesson for me. And I was, you know, ten when we moved there. So, for example, in my high school in Trenton Central High School, in my honors English class in tenth grade, we were reading The Scarlet Letter, and there weren't enough books in the class for everybody to take the book home and read. So, in honors English, they were like desks next to each other. So I would read two pages out loud and then pass the book to the person next to me and then they were reading two pages out loud, right? That's in honors English. Some of my classes, if everybody showed up to class that day, there weren't enough desks in the classroom for all the students in the class so they would just tell you to leave, right? So it was a good lesson to me, you know, in observing how am I in the same state, but I see such huge inequities in the quality of education in one school district versus another school district, right? And then also seeing my peers, because I had many friends in the Trenton schools who were super smart and super capable, but got lost in the shuffle because we were in terrible schools. And so looking at their not only educational outcomes and their career trajectories, but also how that shaped their health outcomes, Mm -hmm. right, was an important early lesson to me. Yeah, so I think the truth is that my friends in Trenton Central High School should have had access to the same opportunities to be successful and to live happy and healthy lives as my friends in the Montclair Public Schools, but they didn't because of these social determinants of health that are kind of orchestrated by structural racism, right? And so health equity research helps me to document what these problems are, but also be able to work kind of at the intersection between the communities and between the these systems that are causing the harm, to say, like, these are the problems that are impacting the health and well-being of children, and how can we develop solutions, right? And how do I use my voice and my position of power as a platform to give a voice to those children who are living in these marginalized areas and being able to give them a voice that will hopefully lead to them having increased opportunities.
0: Be what you want to see. Act 2. The road. Tiffany, I usually ask my guests this question because it's really fun. How do you play? I absolutely
1: love bubbles. <laughs> so. <laughs> All the nurses laugh at me in the emergency department because I work overnight when we don't have child life specialists, usually on the overnights. So I'm always asking for bubbles, even when it's like a 16-year-old male. I'm like, you want some bubbles? (laughs) So I love bubbles. I use them at work. I have bubbles in my office. I have bubble machines at home. I love playing with bubbles. How can you be stressed out when you're blowing bubbles? It's impossible. So bubbles is a form of play for me. I did a family oral and written history project with my mother and my sister a couple of years ago. One of the questions was like, what did you like to play with as a child? And how can you invite more play into your life as an adult? And so I was recalling enjoying playing with Barbies. And so I bought a bunch of Barbies. I play with Barbies. And so I set my Barbies up like last summer. I set them up to do a protest. <laughs> and I made like little protests signs. <laughs> So I enjoy that and I enjoy reading. I enjoy like crafting and decorating my house. So play has been an important resilience tool for me in the past few years surviving this pandemic.
0: I love to ask the question of my guests. You know, when we think about what is our journey and what is our journey as Black people, we're very much a part of this grind culture and Mm -hmm. much of our labor has always been commodified. Our bodies have been commodified. And so now that it's not commodified in the same way, Mm -hmm. we can exercise more publicly and in private some autonomy. And so as part of our own journey of self-discovery, part of our own journey of becoming who we are, play is something that many of us aren't afforded. Or sometimes there's a lot of intentionality around the play that we engage in that in many ways help to inform why is it that we do the work and do the things that we do today?
1: I think the other thing is that I had to give myself permission to make time for play because we do live in this kind of grind culture that if you're not like going, 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 then you know, you're not doing enough. I just had to get to a point where I accepted that You know, the academy is insatiable, right? And no matter how much you do, it's never enough. So how do I just set up better boundaries and better limits, which I'm still certainly a work in progress, but giving myself permission that, like, if I want to stop and sit on my sun porch and blow bubbles, like that is a great use of my time and nobody can tell me otherwise.
0: Mm, Absolutely. I've heard you describe your life's purpose as being able to make a positive impact on your community through promoting equity around race and racism and its impact on child health, whether it's talking about implicit bias in pediatric medicine broadly or specifically examining racial and ethnic differences in antibiotic use, pain management care of children when they come to the emergency department. So how does your passion or your purpose comport with your own personal journey as both an abolitionist and an advocate?
1: So I talked about my quarter-life crisis. I'm also like still working through a mid-career crisis. Now. <laughs> Maybe it is a midlife life crisis. I just turned 40. Black people don't really live to be more than 80, but hopefully I live than that.
0: I hope so too.
1: 78 is the average life expectancy of a Black woman, but hopefully i live longer. I am, you know, mid-career. Like, I just made this transition from assistant to associate. And so at this mid-career crisis, it's been a good time for me to think there are these things that you're expected to do, right? And you have to check the boxes. I talked a little bit earlier about the ways in which, you know, when you're doing work around equity and anti-racism, like there's gatekeeping around that work, but it also gets whitewashed by the gatekeepers in order to be acceptable and palatable to the general society. And so for me, like a lot of that early career was just check the boxes, right? Just go along to get along, get these grants and get these publications and get promoted and get your tenure. And then once I got it, then it's like, in what ways have I diluted myself and my mission and my vision and my purpose in order to try to fit within this box of what the academy defines as meritorious. And now that I have gotten to a point where I can't get fired, I've gotten to, you know, I've gotten promoted, how can I more authentically and audaciously walk in that mission and that vision? I kind of feel like I've done great work, right, that I'm proud of, but I've really just scratched the surface in terms of what I am capable of doing and what I'm meant to do. But because of the grind culture, right, and the brainwashing and all the other things, I don't actually know what's under the surface and I'm still trying to figure out how to get there. But it is a time where I'm trying to reimagine how do I become less concerned with the gatekeeper's stake and less concerned with not hurting white people's feelings and become more concerned with like how to empower and protect my community. So I think that is where I am right now.
0: And it speaks to articles that you've penned that are not published specifically in the traditional medical academic journals, but you have an article that's entitled anti-racism black lives matter and critical race theories or another article entitled your silence will not protect you i think you've gotten to a place even right before getting tenure that in your spirit you felt you know i'm tired of toting the line i'm gonna push the conversation and here's my perspective on this, And I just hope for your sake, too, that the whimsicalness of the bubbles and sitting on one's porch, really the fun part, now that you have a little bit more latitude professionally, that you're able to bring some of that spirit in to the work where it's not whimsical, it's very serious. Racism is heavy. It's a heavy topic. <laughs> I don't see people blowing bubbles reading and talking and
1: writing about racism like all day every day. It's exhausting. Yeah.
0: As you were saying in Academia, you almost feel like I have to kind of say certain things and be a certain way. But then there's a certain period where we become enlightened and to say, no, I'm going to say what I'm going to say and she said mm-hmm. what she said.
1: And just being inspired by Audre Lorde like your silence will not protect you, right? being silent about these things does not prevent me from experiencing harm. It doesn't prevent my patients from experiencing harm. I might as well speak my truth because they're going to hurt me
0: either way. What do you see as some of the challenges or the issues that Black and Latinx physicians, researchers, and activists continue to face in the field?
1: there's certainly the minority tax. Honestly, I experienced that a lot more earlier in my career when I was at CHOP because it's such a big giant institution and there are like so few Black academics within that institution. The responsibilities for mentorship and for committee work and for developing the bias curriculum and doing all of those things, I got caught up a lot in this sense of this need that so few people could meet. So I felt like I needed to meet that need, but it resulted in me not getting much right So it took away from the activities that I needed to be doing to get myself promoted. And it's hard to pull back from those things where you're like elbow deep into them. So when I transitioned to UC Davis, I've been able to do a better job about not getting caught up with that diversity tax and being more clear about like what my mission is and what my vision is and how not to engage in activities that are going to detract from me being able to fulfill my mission, even if they are things that are important and need to be done. So diversity tax, though, is something that most Black academics are facing.
0: Granted, we can't parse out our identities because there's intersections, but do you think it's because you are a woman, a woman of color? Do you think it's just because you are an African-descended person? Is it all the above? How do you see that play out? I'm just curious.
1: You know, that is interesting. I think it's all of the above. When I was in Philadelphia and I was at a big children's hospital, pediatrics is predominantly female, right? So most of my leaders and most of my bosses at every other point in my career, there were more female leaders than male leaders just because it was a more female dominated field. But now coming to UC Davis, I'm in a department of emergency medicine. In general, emergency medicine specialties are more male dominated than female dominated. So some of the gender politics that I didn't experience Earlier in my career, it was mostly racialized. Now I'm seeing more of the intersection of race and gender for me in this particular setting that I hadn't experienced before. Interesting. The work that we do is often devalued. The type of scholarship that we do is considered to be soft science and not real science. You know, diversity efforts aren't valued in the same way as kind of other service efforts or other research efforts are is certainly a challenge that we all experience. I've been fortunate enough that I've had pretty good mentorship and that has not been a challenge for me in my career. And I've been able to maintain strong mentoring relationships even as I've been academically promiscuous and hopping around from one institution to the next. I still keep mentors in my other institutions. Just last week, there was kind of an awards program in pediatric emergency medicine. And so I was writing a letter for an award for one of my mentors to get kind of a more senior award. And he was writing a letter for me to get an early career award. And so it was just an interesting time reflecting. I met him when I was an intern in 2006, so I'm 40 years old. I've known him for 17 years. I'm like, oh my goodness, Like I've known this man almost half of my life. He's just one of the many mentors that I've kind of accumulated along the way. So I think that I personally have not had as many challenges that some of my other colleagues have had in having like the mentorship and sponsorship to kind of help open doors and and to be successful. I've been lucky in that sense.
0: And how has it been to Lift As You Climb? It
1: is one of the best parts of our job because we tired of doing this work alone. (laughs) It is exhausting work too, though. Mentoring students and early career people, it takes much more work to mentor somebody to write an article than just write it yourself. So it is exhausting work, but it is so satisfying when you see someone start off as a medical student and now they go into residency and fellowship and now they're in their early career. And and it's also beautiful to see the diversity of the field increasing and growing. And so that one mentor that I talked about, he's actually started kind of like a lattice system where we have a secret society at the academic meetings where we all get together. And so it's the senior and emeritus Black academics, as well as the you know late career, mid career, early career, fellows, residents, and medical students. How do we come together and kind of do that waterfall mentoring to help the next generation come along? That's work that is so important to do in order to continue to diversify the field. And it is some of the most satisfying things that I do.
0: We know what life was like before COVID. And then now we're in this period of reconstruction. I think the question for you would be, with all those things considered, where do you think the field will be in the next five to 10 years? What do you think the state of children's health equity will be?
1: I would like to say that it is going to be so much further advanced because we've been involved in this national reckoning around race and racism. And like now everybody's going to do the right thing and we're going to move the field along. And I am sometimes hopeful whenever I do interact with medical students. Let me tell you, this generation of medical students who are around now, they're about it. They're not taking those stuff. They're much more bold and audacious and speak out in ways that my generation and generations before me did not do. And so they give me some hope. But I think where I become a little bit more despondent is when I see as the COVID pandemic is kind of phasing out and ending. Then we face this other respiratory pandemic in pediatrics this past year with respiratory syncytial virus and other respiratory viruses I felt like we learned no lessons. How are we still dealing with the same things? How did we learn no lessons before about kind of how to build up capacity and build up infrastructure? So that part discourages me. Another thing that discourages me is, again, as a pediatrician in a field that is female-dominated, even though it's female-dominated historically, like a lot of the leadership had still been white men, but we're seeing a transition now as jobs turn over where we're seeing more women in peds and leadership roles. I'm seeing white female colleagues who are the same advocates for gender equity using the same tools of oppression that men use against them, against women of color. And so at one point, I was like, we just need all the old white men to die. Then we get like a new generation of leaders and then things will be different. But unfortunately, the new generation of leaders that we're seeing right now, many of them are using the same playbook as the past generation of leaders because this is the framework that they have been taught and this is how you're successful. So that part leaves me discouraged that it's not going to be any better because we're just pulling up and elevating people who are using those same tools. And so I feel like it's only going to get worse, unfortunately. <laughs> so I'm like, let me Reread the parable of the sowers and the parable of the talents to get some lessons on how to create my own little community. Because when I walk down the streets of Sacramento and I see tent cities, right, and like homelessness not being addressed, when I'm in the emergency department and we're still boarding patients for two, three, four, five days with mental health emergencies because they don't have any other resources and we're just holding them in the emergency department until we can get them access to additional care. And I see that there was this whole reckoning around Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, but like Black folks still getting shot by the police. It doesn't feel like it's getting better.
0: Well, besides using Octavia Butler as the person's work where we can say, is there a map in here? Is there some clues? Are you saying there's no hope? I'm
1: definitely not saying that there is no hope. I guess I'm like Octavia Butler, right? And so her forecasting ahead to 2024 in the parable of Sowers wasn't saying there's no hope. It's saying this is the warning of where we're going. And so what can you do to try to change course? I don't feel hopeless, but I do feel like if we continue on the pathway that we're on right now, things are not going to get better and they're going to get worse. So I guess the question for me as I am in this mid-career crisis and kind of figuring out kind of how I redefine and reshape what this next phase of my career is going to be it's thinking that I've spent a lot of my early career in defining the problem and how can I spend this part of my career and really engaging with and empowering communities to be a part of the solution to try to get us on a different path. Because if we keep doing things the same way, it's going to get worse. But I am hopeful that maybe we can change course. We're definitely not there yet.
0: Act three, where we land. All right, Dr. Tiffany Johnson. What's your progress for your campaign for president-elect for the Academic Pediatric Association? I love this part of the program. So please share, because you're busy on Twitter. Every time I see you, you're winning an award. You got funding for a grant.
1: I am running for a leadership position in the Academic Pediatric Association. They solicited and asked me to run. What excites me about the potential for that is as we talk about some of these challenges within academic medicine, how can you then kind of get into the highest level of leadership to drive and shape the agenda for academic pediatricians and how we address the needs of children. So that election just ended and I will find out the results soon. So hopefully by the time this airs, I'll know the results. And when it comes when it comes to that as well as any other opportunity in my life i always ask the universe to open the doors that are supposed to open and to close the doors that are supposed to close cuz the universe always has a better plan for my life than the plan that I have for myself. And so if this is the best pathway for me to advance an equity agenda within the academy, then that door will open. And if it closes, then I just know it's closing to free up space and opportunity for me to use other avenues. So I'm excited about any of those possibilities. I am excited about a lot of the research that I'm doing right now. So I got a bajillion different grants I'm working on. One of the ones I'm working on that is exciting to me is working with an investigator at Lori Children's who does child abuse research. The challenge with younger children who present with injuries like broken bones and bruising is they can't tell us how they got injured. And so it's a matter of figuring out that this kid get injured because they were being abused by a caregiver or was it an accident. And so it's important because you want to make sure that you don't miss abuse, because if you miss it, then you put. Them back in the hands of their abusers. And what happens often is that because of racism and bias, we see that Black children who are presenting with injuries that are clearly accidents are getting worked up with unnecessary testing for abuse, and they're also being funneled into the child protective services system. And so you are potentially pulling kids out of homes and causing more harm and more distrust by reporting them for things that were clearly an accident. One of the things that we're working on is developing clinical decision rules that help reduce that clinical uncertainty that help you figure out like, was this an accident or was this abuse? So that we can make sure that we're reporting and working up the right ones, but we're not causing harm, particularly to minority communities where they're getting unnecessarily reported. So this is, again, a good part of my career. We've documented all of these disparities that exist. And then how do we develop tools to give to providers to be able to reduce some of those disparities? That's one of the things that I'm working on. The other thing that I'm working on that is um, excited for me is, you know, we talked about getting enough rest and I'm working on doing that more, but also kids don't get enough sleep and kids don't get enough rest. I'm working with some investigators looking at sleep disparities in kids in early childhood and looking at what are some of the factors in their home and in their neighborhood and their school environment that are keeping kids from being able to get the rest that they need to get. And so that is exciting for me as I think about like what I would want for my childhood self. I should have gotten more sleep as a child and I need to get more sleep as an adult, but how do I help to develop solutions? help these babies get some rest so that they can live longer and healthier lives too. The other new thing for me is I've been doing some work with the American Academy of Pediatrics, the AAP, on eliminating race-based medicine. And so recognizing that race is a social construct, not a biological construct, but that's not how I was taught in medical school. And we had many pathways in our specialty that inappropriately include race and algorithms to help us make our treatment decisions. common example that you see is in adult patients, Populations, glomerular filtration rate, which is kind of a look at kidney function. And there's actually a correction baked into it in the records where they adjust it based on your race. The challenge of that is that when you do that correction, then when you have adult patient populations who have end-stage renal disease, they need to meet a higher threshold before they can then get the therapeutics they need. Another example, so the US has terrible outcomes for maternal and child health in our country, particularly for black women. And one of the things that drives some of those disparities and outcomes is that there are higher rates of cesarean sections as opposed to vaginal births. But the VBAC calculator, as it kind of currently exists, actually includes race in there for no apparent reason. Because of that, it kind of rates Black women as being riskier for having a vaginal birth after a cesarean section. So then they're more likely to just go on to get a C-section as opposed to white women who are more likely to be given a trial for vaginal birth. And then in pediatrics, another example was our pediatric urinary tract infection guidelines where race was included in it. Because so much of it has been hidden in plain sight, we just have to start from scratch, right? So we um, applied for funding with the AAP where we're going to go through all of the academy's guidelines and reevaluate them with an equity lens to make sure that we are not creating policies in the academy that are inappropriately inserting race as a biological construct instead of recognizing that it is a social construct. And the importance of that is it's not a call to be colorblind, right? Because we recognize that race and your lived experience impacts your health and outcomes. But when we see race driving something, it's usually racism. And so how do you then look at the root causes for what's driving it? So I'm excited to be partnering with them to do some of that work.
0: All of it's fascinating. And I think it really speaks to people who might be practitioners themselves. And you're kind of thinking about, well, when I'm in clinic, I don't see myself as being racist, so what does she mean when she's talking about all of this? And not recognizing, as you've already said, that we're not necessarily talking about individual instances of racial bias and discrimination, but sometimes the same tools. That we're Mm. using to deliver the care that we feel so compelled to provide to our patients, particularly if they are of minoritized or underserved communities, you may be making things even worse unintentionally. To your point, if the thresholds for GFR are such, then that has implications in terms of, oh, what you're going to choose to prescribe to your patient, the kind of care that you're recommending that they should follow. Please tell us where people can find you to learn more, to follow your work, to be involved, perhaps to even to vote um, <laughs> for your campaign, all of that.
1: The election is closed, so you can't vote for me. But be on the lookout because I'm going to take over pediatrics. So I'll be running for something else again in the future for those pediatricians who are out there listening. So my Twitter is at Dr. Dr. Tiff, T-I-F-F Johnson.
0: But yeah. this has been awesome. We wish you all the best in terms of your campaign for president-elect of the Academic Pediatric Association and for all of the fantastic work that you are currently engaged in. Thank you so much for sharing your journey of belonging to Blackness with us.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you for using your platform to help tell our stories.
0: The journey isn't over, but this episode is. To catch the latest, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram at journeysb2b underscore podcast. Thanks for listening.